So like I said, we're looking at a string of stories about Jesus' life and ministry tonight. We did this about a few weeks ago. We looked at the power of Jesus. And tonight, um, here's how I want us to approach this string of stories, all right? I want us to approach it as if we're sitting before a sage, all right? So a sage is someone who's collected a wealth of knowledge in regards to life and purpose. And so they have this ability to see things very clearly and plainly before them. So maybe you have a grandparent that whenever you sit around them and they talk to you about life, you just sort of soak in their wisdom. Maybe you have a mentor that's really invested in your life and whenever they've spoken into your life, it's just this treasure trove of knowledge that they give over to you. Maybe it's just been somebody that you just randomly ran into. You sat down for one of those conversations and as you're sitting down and you're talking, you just experience like this is like a, a unique moment. This person has lived a lot of life. This person knows Jesus. This person has a lot to speak into my life. And so you just sort of sit and you bask in the wisdom that they bring to you. And that's what I want us to do tonight. Um, last year, I, my wife and I cherished, we had one of these experiences. We were away on a retreat in North Carolina. And there's this pastor and his wife, Crawford and Karen Loritz. I got a picture of him up here for you. Um, they got up at this conference. And this is a guy who's been married to his wife for half a century. And um, they had been in ministry for about the exact same time. And so he gets up before us, he and his wife both get up in this conference and they, uh, they get up and they're just very clear that, hey, we, you all are all in ministry. Um, you know the effects of what that looks like in your life. They're like, we do too. We've been in this, We've, we're well beyond you and your years. And so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna give you 10 different things for you to think about in terms of your marriage when it comes to doing life in ministry. And as they got and they sat down in their seats, it was like this authority that they sat down in their seats with. And as soon as they started talking, my wife and I looked at each other and we were like, this is about to be something special. And so what they did is they got up and they just went off and they, they gave us about 10 different things for us to think through whenever it came to ministry and the stresses that come with ministry. They talked about what it looks like to be mar married in ministry. He traveled a ton and so he gave personal stories about how he took a picture of his family to his hotel room, every single place that he went and traveled because he looked at that picture and he said, every time that I look at this picture, I know that I have people back at home that are depending on me. And so he never did anything stupid as he's away on his trips. He talked about having kids in ministry and just the effects that that have on your kids in, uh, in your home. Um, he gave us like this insight that whenever you're planting a church, starting a new church from the ground up, beware of sibling rivalry. And what he meant is that you have kids and whenever they had kids and they started a church that their, they had a kid that was born the exact same year that their church was started, we had the exact same thing. We had our shepherd the very same year that we moved here to start Storyline Church. And he said, beware of sibling rivalry whenever you have your children, meaning don't, don't give more attention to your church than you do your own kids in your own home. He just started spouting off all this wisdom, he and his wife, Karen. And we sat down and we just basked in it. We just sat and we wanted to consume it because we could tell that this is one of those unique moments that we were never going to experience probably with this couple ever again. So we sat and we took in and we soaked in everything that they said. And that's exactly what I want us to do tonight. There's four different stories that I want us to come and I want us to sit before Jesus. I want to sit before Jesus and soak in what he has to tell us because as we look at the string of stories that we have that Mark has for us tonight, it is just on full display the wisdom that Jesus had in his life and ministry. In these stories, we see that Jesus has this ability to see things clearly that other people just couldn't. When it came to their own societal culture issues, whenever it came to practices within their own belief set, whatever you look at, there's just this ability that Jesus has to see things clearly, but then he also has this unique skill that he puts things plainly. That just for the common man that he speaks into these issues in such a way that 
every person that's around him. It doesn't matter what socioeconomic status you're coming from. It doesn't matter what your skill level is in your profession. It doesn't matter what degree you have. Every person as they're around Jesus, they are able to hear the things that he's speaking to them plainly. And so as we look at these stories, we sit before the wisdom of Jesus, here's what we're gonna find. Four things. First, that Jesus rightly discerns allegiances. Second, that he grasps God's power. Third, that he properly prioritizes love. And then lastly, that he recognizes the Messiah. So here's my hope for us, all right? I want us to leave as the crowds do at the end of each of these stories where they're just marveling at who Jesus is. This is our goal for every single time that we gather, but especially tonight as we're looking at this passage, I just want us to leave thinking about how great Jesus is. I just want us to leave thinking about this Jesus that came and gave up his life for us that we just leave wanting to know him more. We want our lives to model and resemble who this Jesus is. So that's my goal for us tonight. So as we look at these aspects of Christ's wisdom and as we look at an appropriate response, I just want us to leave marveling at who Jesus is. So as we get into this, every single one of these stories occur because there's a challenge that's being brought to Jesus. The first challenge is in regards to a social matter. It's about taxation. Um, so this just so happened to fall in April 3rd. Tax day is April 18th, so maybe this is just a friendly reminder to get your taxes in, if at the very least. But hopefully you get more from this than just that. So this challenge we see um, of taxation, in this challenge, we see Jesus' wisdom on full display because he discerns allegiances. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to work through these different stories. Usually I try to read aspects of the story, just the longer bit of the text to refresh us, but we have too many verses to cover. So I'm just going to try to give us a little snapshot. So before we dive in, here's a little bit of a context. All right. So last week we looked at Mark chapter 10, Jesus and his disciples, they're on their way to Jerusalem. Chapter 12, they're there. So here's what's happened. The triumphal entry has already happened. Jesus is riding into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. The crowd sing Hosanna over Jesus. Jesus has gone into the temple already and he's kicked out all the money makers. He's turned over all the table filled with money. And then you see what happens for us here. The Sanhedrin, which is this collection of religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, they send a group of leaders in order to try to trap Jesus. Everything that we see in this passage, what their ultimate goal is, they wanna eliminate Jesus. They're trying to trap Jesus because they wanna eliminate Jesus because they're jealous of Jesus. And so the first instance that we see is over this issue of taxation. And it starts by them trying to butter Jesus up, right? They're trying to soften him up. They're trying to kind of get him into a corner by softening him up before they get in this. And so they come and say, teacher, you're so honorable. You're so confident. You're so impartial in the way that you treat people. You teach truth about God, no matter who's in the room or what's the stakes. You are always teaching these things. And finally, they get to their question where they're trying to trap Jesus. And we see this in verse 14. It says, it is lawful. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? So as we look at this, it's like, well, what's the trap, right? Like, well, of course, you just pay your taxes. Like, that's the easy question. I, like, no wisdom is needed here. You just go pay the taxes. Well, here's how this is a trap, all right? At this time, as we all know, Rome is in charge. And all the people that are in the nation of Israel, as well as any other nation that Rome has conquered, they view the Roman Empire as the oppressor. And so what the, the Pharisees are trying to do here, whenever they bring this question to Jesus, if Jesus answers yes, then he's viewed as a traitor by his own people. The Pharisees see him as on the side of the oppressor, and there's this group called the zealots that are around in Jesus' time. And so what they're hoping is if Jesus says yes, he's viewed as a traitor, and the zealots try to take him out, eliminate Jesus. If he says no, then the Roman government will actually see him as the extremist. And so he'll be arrested, he'll be tried, 
for trying to raise up an insurrection against the Roman government. And so they're trying to put Jesus in this trap because they want to eliminate Jesus. And this is actually just a really difficult circumstance that they put Jesus in. This is actually a really big pickle that they're trying to put Jesus into because they don't even have an answer for it. That's why they're bringing it to Jesus, because they know that there's not this clear answer. And if Jesus tries to provide a clear answer, then he's going to doom himself. But this is where you see the wisdom of Jesus on full display, because it seems like there's only two options, a yes or a no, and then Jesus has to live with the consequences. But Jesus sees things more clearly than anyone else at this point in time. And what he actually says to them, he sees through all of the buttering up that they're trying to do with him. And he says this, why put me to the test? He sees what they're trying to do. He sees that they don't really want the answer, that they're really just trying to pride this trap in that they really want to see Jesus eliminated. And so here's what he does. He says, why do you want to put me to the test? And so he asked them to bring him a denarius. This is a, a coin. And this is probably an unexpected move on the Pharisees' part. They probably, this is not what they think Jesus is going to do. So it likely throws them off. And so they bring him one. They finally find a denarius. They bring Jesus one. And then Jesus asks whose inscription is on the coin and to which they answer that it's Caesar's. Now we need to stop here because there's really important things that happen in just this little small couple of verses, all right? So the first thing is this, is that they actually possess a denarius. The Pharisees themselves possess a denarius and then two, they identify that Caesar is the one that's on a coin. Now here's why this is such a big deal. On the denarius, you have, I have a picture up here for us. On the denarius, you have the actual Caesar himself that's on there, as well as the high priest that's on the back side of it as well. And there's an inscription on this. And this inscription says, Tiberius Caesar, August son of divine Augustus. You see, at this point in time, Caesar viewed himself as God. The one that deserved the worship of anybody and everybody that's under the Roman authority. And then on the backside, you have the high priest, who's the one that's carrying out this worship for the people of Rome, for Caesar himself. And so what this coin actually is, is it's this portable idol. It's this portable idol that goes around with anybody and everybody at this point in time, and it serves as a reminder that Caesar is the one that is to serve as the ultimate God in your life. The high priest on the backside is to show that this is the way that you live out worship unto Caesar himself. And so what Jesus identifies here is that these Pharisees who are to be leading God's people in worship to God alone possess a portable idol from the Roman government itself that serves as a reminder to who worship is to go to in that time under Roman authority. And so as Jesus does all of this, he's exposing the Pharisees himself. These people that are to be completely devoted in their worship to God, they have no problem in having this portable idol in their own pockets. They have no problem doing business with this little portable idol in their pockets. And Jesus exposes it by asking them to bring him a denarius in and of itself. And by Jesus doing this, by exposing this first, now he can answer the Pharisees' question. And he says this, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. In essence, Jesus is saying, give to Caesar what bears his image, which is the coin, and give to God what bears his image. And it's like Mark is saying, by the way, that's you. Every person that God creates, every human being, bears his image. And so give to Caesar what is Caesar's his little scrap pieces of metal, give him his taxation. But you, who bear his image, give that to God. And so Jesus, in the midst of this really difficult circumstance, he shows his brilliance. This well of wisdom that Jesus has, when it seemed like there were only two options, Jesus sees through it. He sees more clearly than anybody else at that point in time. He shows his wisdom before all. And it says that the people were amazed. They marveled at Jesus. 
Jesus sees so clearly what no one else could, even those people that are supposed to be the model examples of what it looks like to be devoted to God himself, he completely debunks them. They have no rebuttal for what Jesus says here. They know exactly what they're bringing to Jesus when they bring him this loaded question. They're trying to get him. They're trying to square him up into a corner where he can't get out to where he's exposed, to where he's eliminated, to where they don't have to deal with Jesus anymore. But then he finds this clearer path and it utterly amazes all of the crowds. The wisdom of Jesus is on full display. Now, here's a question for us, all right? As the Pharisees show that their devotion to God has gotten out of sync, they've drifted in their life, they have these portable idols, they've given some ways that they've just sort of like gotten off the course, there's these different ways that they've given into society, Here's the thing that we need to wrestle with, too, is does God have my full devotion? Is there any semblance of what the Pharisees did in their life regarding the denarius and the coin that's going on in my life? You see, for every single one of us, there's always a drift that happens in our life. And the thing that we need to realize is there's never a drift into spiritual maturity. You don't wake up one morning and be like, oh, I'm more like Jesus, That's not the way that we go. No, whenever you look at your life and you try to find drifts, what we realize is that we drift away from Jesus rather than drifting towards Jesus. And so we need to ask ourselves, look, is there anything that that the Pharisees were dealing with in their life and the drift that got away from God? Is there anything that's going on in my life that resembles that as well? Does God have my full devotion? I think that's what Mark is trying to point out to us here the grand scheme of things he wants us to see, the authority and wisdom of Jesus. But in this, he also wants us to ask the question, does God have my full devotion? Now, as tricky as the situation was, it was only the first wave of four that happened within the stories that we're looking at. The second wave we see in verses 18 through 27. So in the second wave, the first wave, you have the Pharisees that come to Jesus with this question. The second wave, you get this new group of religious leaders that are called the Sadducees. Now, these are a very uber-conservative group of religious leaders. They are the ones that only believe that the first five books of the Old Testament are authoritative, meaning like they're the only ones they're going to look at as a means for which God speaks to his people. The short phrase for saying this is Pentateuch. So the Pentateuch. Pentateuch doesn't address things like the resurrection. So the Sadducees, they just don't believe in it, all right? And that's what this whole scenario that they're about to bring to Jesus revolves around. The the Sadducees, they don't believe in the resurrection. And so with their belief set, they create this challenging situation that they want to present to Jesus before the crowds because, again, they're trying to get him to trip up. They're trying to give him this trap that he'll fall into. And so the situation is based on this old Jewish practice called the leveret marriage. So verse 19 gives us an insight into what this looks like. Here's what the Sadducees say to Jesus. Say, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. I'm pretty sure that this is what they still do in southern Missouri. So um, if you do, don't go down to southern Missouri. But in this whole construct, this whole practice, they're trying to build up this situation. And as they build up the situation under this practice of Jewish people, of the Jewish people, They come, they bring it, and they propose it to Jesus. And so here's the situation that they propose. Here's how they're trying to trip them up, all right? They say, hey, there's this family with seven brothers. The first brother marries. He dies, but doesn't leave any offspring for his wife. So the second brother, following this Jewish practice, takes this widow, marries her. He also dies, doesn't leave any offspring. The third does likewise. In fact, you go all through seven brothers, none leave any offspring for this woman, and then to cap it off, the woman herself dies as well. And so here's their question, verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise, speaking of the seven brothers as well as the woman, whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? Now, as Jesus is approached by the Sadducees and his response, you see that he doesn't hold back whatsoever. 
he just goes straight for the jugular, right? It's like Will Smith going up to Chris Rock, you know, <laughs> just straight. So here's what he says, verse 24. Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Now, for the people that are around, this is an outlandish claim. Because the two things that the Sadducees are known for are knowing the Bible as well as societal power. They, it's commonly believed that these Sadducees had the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, completely memorized. Could recite it off of memory at the spot. They also had friends in high places. So they knew all the religious Jewish leaders. They also knew who were kind of the government societal leaders. And they were the ones that, were, that had the closest relationship with these leaders amongst Jewish people. And so if there was anybody that knew the Bible as well as had societal power, it was the, the Sadducees. Now here's what one uh, commentator, Bible scholar, smart person had to say. It would be like claiming that Wall Street knows nothing of finance. That's exactly what in essence, Jesus is doing with the Sadducees, the very people that are going to know everything about finance, the people that are going to know everything about the Bible, that are going to know everything about societal power are the Sadducees. And what Jesus is saying is what they actually believe and their power hunger has actually hurt them and not blessed them because they don't grasp the power of God. So Jesus gives us a couple examples of why this is true for them. So the first one is this. They've limited God's power and the practicalities of the, res- of the resurrection. So they, they don't believe that there's anything in the afterlife. They don't believe there's any angels. They don't believe there's any demons. They certainly don't believe there's any resurrection. And so the absurdity of the idea that there is a resurrection or an afterlife, according to what they say here in this scenario, that the practicalities of it, they just don't make sense. The Sadducees, they read all the earthly conventions that we have right now into the heavenly realities. Things like marriage. That if you have these seven brothers that take this woman as their wife and the resurrection happens and they read our earthly conventions into heaven realities, then the resurrection just actually causes more chaos than it does anything else. But Jesus, in his response in verse 25, just says their scenario doesn't even make sense because they don't get the Bible. It says this, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, I think it can be a trap for us to try to get fixated on this idea of the angels of what Jesus says here. It's like, oh, does that mean that after we die, we're going to become angels? Is that what this means? That's not what Jesus is trying to say. What he's trying to say is just like angels do not have marriage as they're with God in his physical presence. So whenever the resurrection happens, we don't bring our earthly conventions into the afterlife. We actually become like the angels in meaning that we don't have marriage. We don't have a husband or a wife as we enter into the heavenlies. And the Sadducees, they just don't get this. In their mindset, the resurrection is no different than this current life. It's just an actual extension of it. And if that's the case, then, man, this thing is just going to be off the rocks crazy. What in the world is this afterlife going to look like? They're like, this is absurd. There's no way that the resurrection is going to happen. There's no way there's an afterlife because this is just a wor- it's just a worse iteration than what we currently have. And Jesus is saying, you just don't get it. Your view of God is far too small. You don't understand the power of God. The second one is that they have a limited view of God's power even in the first five books of the Bible. So these these five books that they're supposed to be like the specialists, the masters of these five books, we see that they don't even get these five books to the extent that they say that they do. Because we see through the example that Jesus provides in Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush, This book of Exodus, it's in the Pentateuch. 
So Jesus is playing on their own turf. He's going to where they know. He's bringing out these books that they have down. And in this story, God speaks to Moses from the burning bush that is not consumed. And he states this quote that we see in verses 26 through 27. So here's what it says. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush how God said to them, and this is a quote he's using from Exodus chapter 3, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. So what in the world is Jesus talking about here? How is he making this reference? How, does this, is, how is this supposed to make any sense to us? Is he speaking like Sixth Sense type of movie where like Moses sees dead, dead people? Is that what he's speaking about? Like, no, that's not what he's saying. He's saying this, God isn't the God of corpses, but of the living. They may be dead physically, but Jesus is saying they're not dead spiritually. These people that have placed their hope and their faith in God, looking forward to the Jesus that is to come, the Savior, the Messiah that they've been waiting for since uh, Genesis chapter 3 at the fall. This, This God who spoke all creation into existence, this God that made a huge promise to Abraham and his descendants that their, their numbers would be more than the stars in the sky. The one that the hope of the world would come through this bloodline. Jesus is saying, look, this God didn't declare these names because he's the God of the dead, but of the living. So of course there's going to be a resurrection. Saying, Sadducees, wake up. Like, don't you know the Bible? Don't you see how small your view of God's power is? He's far more powerful than you're giving him credit. Not just in the practicalities of the resurrection, but even in these books that you say you're a master of. You underestimate the power of God because you don't grasp his control. So look. Jesus, he just calls him out. (laughs) He goes for the jugular. He holds nothing back. He completely exposes the Sadducees. The story ends, and it's like the very first one where you just imagine the crowds that are understanding what Jesus is saying to the Sadducees, and they're like, whoa. We've never seen anybody put the Sadducees in their place like Jesus just did. The authority the power, the wisdom that comes from Jesus just knocks them off of their feet. Now, I think if there's a question that Mark is wanting to leave us with, it's this. What limitations have you put on God? The Sadducees put God in a box that confined his power, and it affected everything for them. It affected their view of the Bible It affected their view on personal experiences of God in this present life, the life circumstances with the scenario that they bring and these brothers that marry this woman. It affects everything in their life, their whole understanding of this present world as well as the one to come. And Jesus is saying they do this because they've limited God and his power. And so I think the question that he's wanting us to wrestle with too is, look, how are you doing this? In what ways are you putting God in a box? In what ways are you limiting his power in this life? In some ways, Jesus is saying, look, this affects your life here and now. If you view that God's power is so confined, then it's going to affect the way that you view circumstances in this life and the way that you pursue them, the way that you, the matters, the struggles that are going on in your life, the whole way that you deal with these things, the power of God, if it's so confined in your life, look, it's going to affect you. And so it's like Mark is saying like, hey, what are your limitations you're putting on God? What are the ways that you're limiting him? Look, we have so much faith in the worldly conventions that we have here, whether it be technology or medicine or even the things that our money can buy us. And we put so much dependence and so much faith in these things that sometimes it hurts us in our view of God's power more than it helps because we lean more on the things that are substantive that we can kind of have in our hands or the things that we can see rather than viewing the infinite, all-powerful God and the work that he can do in this world. And so he's saying, look, what are you leaning on? 
What are the things that are confining God because you're placing more dependence on the things of this world rather than the power and the ultimate world, unworldly kind of power that God has that he, can, that he can use in this life with your present circumstances? How are you limiting God? So not only do we see the wisdom of God on full display, but we're also getting a challenge from Mark himself. What are the limitations you're putting on God? So that's the second wave of traps that Jesus encounters. He grasps God's power in ways that even the religious leaders of the day can't comprehend. Then we see the third wave in verses 28 through 34. And in this encounter, we see that Jesus properly prioritizes love. So the first wave we see are the Pharisees. They come and they present a situation regarding taxation you see the second wave, the Sadducees, they have an issue regarding the resurrections, so the theology, the Bible stuff. Now you have this third, and it's the scribe's turn. And so in Matthew 22, we see that this, at least in the beginning, was intended to be a trap for Jesus. But from what we see in this account in Mark, it looks like there's been some type of heart change with this scribe that comes and presents this question to Jesus because the way that Jesus responds to him and even just the outset of the story itself. So here's, here's where his question is in verse 28. It seems like there's some genuine, genuine curiosity that's going on in this man. He says this, one of the scribes approached, this is Mark speaking obviously, one of the scribes approached and when he heard them debating, he saw that Jesus answered them well. This is where I'm getting like a genuine curiosity in this man. And he asked him, which command is the most important of all? So here's what you need to know. Like in Jewish law, there's over 600 different commands that God gives to his people that he expects them to follow in complete obedience perfectly. And so the scribe, knowing the Bible in and out, he brings this question to Jesus, asking for help in in synthesizing all of this thing down to kind of like, what's the most important? What's the crux? What's the thing, the heart issue that we need to really be dealing with? And so without hesitation, Jesus answers his question. And in his answer, Jesus gives the scribe a bargain because he he gets a two-for-one deal here. All right, so Jesus doesn't just give him one command, he gives them a second one as well. So we see his answer in verses 29 through 31. Jesus answered, the most important is, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these two. So notice this. And Jesus' answer He properly prioritizes love. In both of these things, you see the word love appear in both commands. First one is that you love God. You love him with everything that you have. With all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your body, with all your strength, with all of your soul. Every aspect of the human is included in this command. It's called the Shema. And he any righteous, devout Jew would pray the Shema in the morning and in the evening. This is something they did with a regular practice. And Jesus is saying, like, hey, this is the thing. This is the ultimate love that you are to pursue in this life. It's this verse that you find in Deuteronomy chapter 6. But the second one is close behind it, and it's a second love, and it's that you have a love for your neighbor. He's prioritizing the loves of this life. All of these 600 commands, if you really want to get at the heart of what all of them are trying to communicate, is that you love God and then you love your neighbor as you love yourself. And he properly prioritizes the love of God as the primary love in our life because Jesus understands how humanity is wired. He understands you. He understands the way that God has put you together. He understands the way that God has pieced you and constructed you and wired you internally. And whenever he looks at this, he says, you follow your loves. Where your heart goes is where you go. 
So Jesus puts the love of God at the very forefront of everything that we're to pursue and when it comes to God's commands. Love of God is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the central confession of all of his people. It's the greatest command that Jesus prioritizes in all of the loves that we can have. And it requires the whole being of yourself. So look, Jesus in all of this is saying like, look, God not only is the primary love, but it requires all of you. It's to be an all-consuming type of love. It's supposed to take up over every aspect of your entire being. There's not a single spot in your life that the love of God should not consume in your life. It should take over everything. It should be the ultimate end in your life, this love of God. It's the ultimate pursuit of your life. It gets every part of your being. But then he says, closely behind the supreme love is a love for our neighbor. Now, a neighbor, at this point in time, it's not just the person that lives next door to you. The neighbor for you is everyone, even your enemies. Your enemies are included in your neighbor. And so what, what Jesus is doing here, he says, when we love God appropriately, it bleeds over into our love for others as well. So we love God with our whole being. We give him everything that we are. Every aspect of our whole entire life is to be pointed towards this love of God. But when we do this, it also spills over in our relationships that we have here on this earth. And so there's this pastor, Don Carson. He says, look at the context for us to get the full scope of what this means that we're to love our neighbors. So this this command comes in Leviticus 19.18, and so here's everything that's kind of around it. I'm just going to go through it real quick, and it, what I hope you get in this is just how all-consuming what this law really is proclaiming. It says that you are to care for the poor. You see this in 19.10. You don't steal, verse 11. You don't lie, verse 11. You're fair in how you handle your business, verse 14. You care for the deaf, verse 14. You care for the blind, verse 14. You deal justly with all, meaning there's no discrimination, verse 15. You avoid slander in your life, verse 16. You do not jeopardize the life of your neighbor, verse 16. You do not harbor hatred towards your neighbor, verse 17. You rebuke your neighbor when necessary, but for their good, in verse 17. You do not take revenge or carry a grudge against anyone at any point in your life. That's verse 18. This whole command that is to follow our love of God is also a very weighty command. So the scribe hears Jesus' answer and he agrees with him. He says, you're right, teacher. These loves are more meaningful than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices, which is a really big deal coming from a religious leader at this point in time. And Jesus acknowledges the scribe's wisdom and he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. All people yield to Jesus' wisdom because at the end of this story, it says after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. (laughs) Just the wisdom of Jesus blows people away. He's able to step into societal issues and see clearly what no one else can see. He's able to explain plainly what even the Sadducees can't see whenever it comes to the Bible. He's able to synthesize everything down into two commands out of the 600 that come from the Old Testament law. He's able to see things in ways that people just aren't incapable of seeing them. And he explains it in such ways that everybody understands and it just leaves them in amazement. Now, before we move on to the final wave of questions, here's a question I think that we can wrestle with here in this third wave, and it's this, are my loves properly prioritized? Do I have my loves in my life properly prioritized? See, our bent is towards self-love. There's nobody that needs to teach you what it looks like to look out for yourself, to love yourself. There's, that's just an innate sinful habit that happens in every person's life and has this superseded your love for God or for other people? I think that's what Mark is trying to get us to wrestle with. It is my own self-love has it superseded in my love, in my life, that for God and other people as well. Here's a good gauge. Need help kind of assessing this? Here's a good gauge. Look at your checkbook. Where's your money going? 
Because what Jesus says is where our heart is, there you will also find our treasures. So where's your money going? I help you understand if your loves are properly prioritized in this life. So that's the third, third wave. First one, question regarding taxation. Jesus rightly discerns allegiances. Second wave with the Sadducees. Question regarding the resurrection. Jesus grasps God's power. The third wave, question regarding the greatest commandment. Jesus properly prioritizes love. And we find the fourth wave in the very last few verses of our chapter here. It says this, the, the fourth wave um, is posed, uh, not posed towards Jesus, but it's like Jesus saying, okay, you all have had your turn, now it's my turn, and I'm gonna pose you with a question. And so what we see in verses 35 through 37, Jesus quotes Psalm 110, the most quoted Psalm in all the New Testament, and he poses this question. How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says that the Holy Spirit the, through the Holy, by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, so this is David speaking, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how then can he be his son? So this is a little hard to follow. In short, here's what Jesus is asking. So King David is the greatest king in Israel's history. God made big promises to him in his life, including that the coming Messiah would come through his bloodline. And so in essence, Jesus notices a problem that nobody else has been able to identify. And so he asks, in essence, how can the Messiah be both David's son and David's Lord at the same time? A father doesn't call his son or even his great-grandson his Lord or his sovereign in his life. That's just not how we function. That's not how we do things. And Jesus is trying to show them that David's words do not work if the Messiah is just a normal man. There's no, nobody in a bloodline and a family tree that would look at a descendant and say that they are the Lord, they are the sovereign over this life. And so what Jesus is trying to point out here is that the Messiah must be more than just a regular human being. He must also be fully God. And the Gospel of John makes it apparent that others just don't recognize this. They don't see it. John 1, verse 10 through 11 says this, Speaking of Jesus, he was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So look, while others don't recognize who this Messiah is, Jesus does. Jesus looks at the Old Testament passages. He sees all these prophecies. He sees all these things that have been promised about the coming Messiah. And he sees everything that's happened in his birth narrative. He sees all, he's had all these things that have happened to his parents that they come and tell him. He sits under the teaching of the Pharisees. He pursues all these things. He's wrestled with the scriptures. He understands clearly. The Holy Spirit has come upon him in his baptism. He understands. He walks with God perfectly in this life. He sees all of these come to fruition. And so when he looks at passages like Psalm 110, he says, this is about me. And there's no way that these promises that God has given about this coming Christ, this coming Messiah, can actually be just a man in and of itself. He has to be greater than a man. Fully human, fully God. And nobody understands this. They don't understand it in this situation that Jesus is posing to them. We see from John that nobody recognized them, even though Jesus is the one. He spoke everyone into existence. But Jesus recognized who the Messiah was, and it's him. And he did not wield it for his own personal gain, but for ours. You see this in Colossians chapter 2. He says this, speaking of Jesus, he erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. So look, this is the last week of Jesus' life. He's literally three days away from the cross that he knows is coming his way. And in the midst of this, he speaks all of these things and he knows that he's willing to lay down his life for the sins of the whole entire world. 
He knows what's coming his way, and he speaks all of this into existence. No one else recognizes any of this, but Jesus does. And because Jesus is fully God and he's fully man, he's able to erase our debt and liberate us from the sin that so entangled us, enslaved us for all of our lives. The only requirement is you declare Jesus as Lord. That's why David declares this this son that's going to come from his bloodline as Lord because he knows it's not just going to be a man. It's going to be this God-man. And this God-man is worthy of owning every aspect of his life. So here's the question that I think Mark is trying to get across to us through this text. Is he your Lord? Is he your Lord? You see, here's the thing. We love to view Jesus as Savior. We love to view Jesus as the one that comes into the world, that does for us what we cannot do for ourselves, that he pays the penalty that we could not pay, that he deals with our debt, that he wipes it clean, that we get his perfect righteousness. But look, whenever it comes to Jesus as Lord, that's when we're like, whoa, 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 hold on, time out. What's this? Jesus is what, he's supposed to be authority over my life? that he gets the final say in my life, that I have to relinquish all the rights to my life and my life is Jesus. Well, I, I don't know about that. I like this Jesus is Savior thing, but this Jesus is Lord thing, man, I don't know. Like, I'm my own person, right? No one's supposed to have any say over me. Like, I'm my own authority. Nobody else speaks over my life. But look, if if you want what Jesus has to offer, he can't just be Savior. He also has to be Lord. Full rights. So look, see, you're a Lord. Is he your savior, but is he also your Lord? Does he own your life? Have you given over the rights? So look, the string of stories concludes the large crowd was listening to him with delight. They heard Jesus and they were just in awe at his teaching and his wisdom. And as I said at the very beginning, my goal, hopefully tonight, is that you're leaving just marveling at like the way Jesus responds to these religious leaders and much like the crowds that we marvel at who Jesus is, the wisdom of Jesus that has just been on full display in these accounts of his life. But here's my hope, okay? I hope it stirred something in you. I hope as you look at these accounts of Jesus' life that it stirs something deep inside of you, this wonder that's sort of welling up inside of your own soul. And I hope there's these like questions that are begging themselves in your life. How did Jesus possess such wisdom? And is there a way that the wisdom that Jesus had within this life, is there a way that I can kind of like possess this wisdom in my life as well? I think that's sort of what Mark is trying to point us to here. Not just these like individual questions at each passage, but I think he's wanting us to look at this passage as a whole and come and be like, man, I want this wisdom of Jesus. Can I, can I tap into this wisdom of Jesus? Whenever the Holy Spirit comes in my life, yes, Jesus is Savior, yes, Jesus is Lord. Is there a way that when this Holy Spirit comes inside of me that I can have aspects of this wisdom in my life as well? And I wanna say yes. And here's the way. It's fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9, 10 says this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So look, if you, want to, if you, if you boil down to how does Jesus have such wisdom in this life, I think it's because he follows this verse. So what in the world does fear of the Lord mean? Does it mean like we walk around on eggshells around God just afraid of his like retribution whenever it comes to like our sins in this life? No, that's not what he's trying to get across here. I think he's actually speaking of a proper reverence when it comes to our relation to God. All right, so I have a great dad. I have a great dad. 
My dad was present with me. He was at any and all ball games that I can think of in my life. Like I can't remember a game that he missed, even if it meant that he needed a missed time at work. He was instructive, always took me around, made me do things around the house with him. He was trying to teach me regularly how to do things well in life. He was invested. Like whenever I knew that I wanted to go into ministry, my dad's a pastor as well, he would sit down with me and he'd just lay out the lay of the land of like, hey, here's how you can set yourself up well. Here's what it looks like. Like go get experience, be invested in a church, go to seminary, get some good education, sit under seasoned pastors. Like he just kind of laid the land for me. He was invested in me. But yet, even in the midst of all of this, my dad, I still had this fear anytime that I was around him. This fear not of like getting a beating from my dad, but of respect. Look, anytime that I was around my dad, in my mind, my dad was a monstrous human being, not in his brute, but in his stature. And that influenced the way that I acted around my dad. Because I had this big, big view of my dad. I had this utmost respect for him. I knew the ways that he was personally invested in my life. It affected the way that I walked and I lived before him. And what I think fear of the Lord is trying to say is we should live with this similar reverence towards God in every aspect of our life as well. When you have this proper orientation to God, when you see him as he ultimately is, that he's the one that spoke you into existence, that he's the one that gives you your very next breath, when he's the one that gives you all the resources that you have in this life, when everything that you have you view as a blessing that comes from this very God, that he speaks into your life, that he cares for you, that he sent Jesus for you, that he wants a relationship with you, that he's willing to turn heaven inside out, turning the pockets inside out of heaven because he sends Jesus. There's no plan B. He's the ultimate treasure and he sends Jesus here for us to die in our place. When all of this is viewed properly, it leads to a fear of the Lord in our life. This proper reverence that we want to draw near to this God, that we want to know this God, that when we live this life, we know he sees everything that we do. And so in this proper reverence that we live and follow the commands that he has in this life out of love for him, not as a means to try to earn our way to him, but it's in response to the love that he's already shown us. This is the way that Jesus lives in his life. And as Jesus gets away from the crowds to spend time with his fathers, he follows out of love, the obeys and obeys the commands that God has given for his people perfectly. He has this wisdom that comes because he's followed God. He's gone to the scriptures to know his father. He spent time with him personally. Everything in his life has been completely devoted towards this relationship that he has with his father. And look, wisdom is what follows The very Holy Spirit that came upon Jesus at his baptism is the very Holy Spirit that is gifted to you. Do you want the wisdom of Jesus? Then you fear the Lord as Jesus feared the Lord in his life. And the outcome is wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When you fear the Lord, you can discern allegiances rightly. When you fear the Lord, you grasp God's control, his power in this life. When you fear the Lord, you prioritize supreme love. And when you fear the Lord, you recognize Jesus as the Messiah, as the Lord of your life. This fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. So look, let's marvel at him. And then let's live like him. Let's pray. Let's pray.